and welcome to Gun Owners of America's State of the Second podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee. And I'm John, and we're here with Carrie Sloan from the Crime Prevention Research Center. Carrie, how are you today? I am good, and thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for being on. Well, obviously, um, some major developments are happening at the Supreme Court. We have oral arguments um, taking place uh, in the very near future. And if this is released after those, then they just would have happened. Um, Gun Owners of America, Gun Owners Foundation, as well as Crime Prevention uh, Policy. Research Center. Research Center. Gosh, I'm so bad at names. Um, it's a mouthful, and I understand. <laughs> it took me a few times and some embarrassment and some interviews to when I first started with the organization. So don't worry about it. It's okay. <laughs> Perfect. Um, but you guys also submitted an amicus brief. So let's talk a little bit about um, this case and what it means as we're wrapping up uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Sure. And, and thank you for asking that. Um, for those of uh, your you know, listeners that don't know, I am a domestic violence survivor. Domestic violence advocacy, uh, self-defense advocacy is what threw me into this industry. And uh, so I'm thrilled to be working with John Lott at CPRC, um, particularly around this Rahimi case. Uh, very, very big deal. I don't think a lot of people realize it's as big of a deal as it is because the outcome of this case could potentially impact the way Bruin is interpreted. Bruin may have to have some reinterpretation uh, because of it. But essentially, the Rahimi case, in short, this is the Super Reader's Digest version um, for uh, for all of our lawyers and for those of you watching, we don't have time to go into it. But essentially, he this case is catapulted forward to the Supreme Court because Rahimi, Zachary Rahimi, was his guns were taken away from him without due process under a domestic violence restraining order. However, because he was never convicted, that, uh, that is kind of what the crux of this is. That being said, where the case went to court on was when the police had a warrant and they went in on some other charges and they found firearms there on him as a prohibited person. So it's it's kind of a convoluted case. And again, I, I'm trying to, to keep this as, as broad as I can so that our lawyers don't get involved. But essentially what CPRC has done with our amicus brief is we have presented an immense amount of data as John Lott is known for um, being very good at proving that domestic violence restraining orders do not in fact keep domestic violence victims safe. In no way are we saying one way or another that that Rahimi is, you know, a good guy. This oh, is, I will. He's horrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so it's so important, though, that we understand that these um, gun confiscation orders, these these things that happen in which your firearms are taken without due process, that is the, the bad in this situation, um, too. And so this is... While it's definitely not a saying, oh, we, we need to defend this guy and we need to make sure that, you know, all of these things happen. He could be a really bad guy, but it still could be a very important case for the Second Amendment. And so that's why um, organizations like yours, like ours, get involved is because we have to make sure that we protect the Second Amendment and that good guys aren't disarmed. Yeah, I mean, let's be, you know, I, I realize y'all want to be more diplomatic, but I know I've worked with GOA for years. Um, I, I'm not known necessarily for, like, this guy is probably the worst person that we could probably have representing gun owners. Let's just be, let's just call a spade a spade. Um, his, his criminal record is long. It's glorious. Uh, as far as criminal records go, it's pretty impressive. 
in a disturbing way. Um, but again, that in itself only proves that just because somebody has had their guns confiscated from them under, uh, uh, whether by due process or through conviction, right, either way, does not mean that they're not going to continue to get a firearm, right? This guy was convicted on some crimes. He uh, had his guns confiscated on uh, this domestic violence restraining order without due process. And either way, wow, he still got firearms and, and the police found them. So at the very least, what we're proving is that criminals are going to continue to get firearms regardless of whether or not they're prohibited uh, persons or not. Absolutely. And one of the things that is so frustrating is we see people push for um, background checks. We see for people pushing for mandatory wait periods, all of these really bad um, gun control arguments because they believe that more government is going to fix this problem. But the reality is the stuff that he has done was already illegal. And so he is going to operate outside of the laws because that's what criminals do. And by adding more restraints to good gun owners, it just um, lessens the the value or the um, the fortitude of the Second Amendment. Correct. And I think that there's no better case. And, and if you're if, if you're familiar with this at all, I know a lot of gun owners and pro 2A advocates are, but there is a case out of New Jersey, and I believe it was 2017. Don't quote me on that date. But the case was a Carol Bound case, and she was a domestic violence survivor, or victim, excuse me. She she didn't survive. Um, she was a domestic violence victim who had re gotten a restraining order against her abuse uh, against her abuser after they'd broken up. He continued to escalate the situation, continued to escalate the situation. Uh, she finally went down and applied for. Now, remember, in Jersey, it was a whole other mess, right? I mean, she had to apply to get permission to buy a gun to begin with. And that is over and above the the cost per, the prohibitive of training and the permits right this is in addition to it well conveniently the uh, the time period for the background check for for gun purchase approval um, expired she had to reapply yet again for permission from the state of New Jersey to purchase a firearm mm -hmm. and while she was waiting she had cameras security cameras installed around her home and her murder and dismemberment by her abuser, who was a prohibited person promoting firearms and, um, you know, we had a restraining order against him. Um, he murdered her and with a knife and then dismembered her body. So in, in that particular case, and there, there's many more of those, we just don't know a lot about them because the narrative doesn't support uh, victims um, wanting to defend themselves with a firearm. They'd rather see victim, domestic violence victims become martyrs for gun control as opposed to empowering them to learn to defend themselves. Um, but in this case, we know of, very because it was a very public case, but how many more cases are out there that we don't know of where a woman was delayed the ability to defend herself with a firearm, a good law-abiding citizen and victim? Um, from a in, a in a system that's already setting her up for failure because criminals are not going to follow those background checks to begin with. These are hard conversations for people to have. They're hard conversations for people to listen to. Um, these are things that, you know, it's, it's a trigger warning for a lot of people because so many people are in abusive situations and they want to know that they can go in and protect themselves and get out of a situation. But sometimes it is state laws, local municipality laws, 
Um, and then even the federal government that can be working against them because they believe that they have the the full, um, what would you call it, the monopoly on keeping people safe when in reality you are responsible for keeping yourself safe and we should be empowering you to do so. Absolutely. And I, you know, working, you know, I, I have my own nonprofit as well, We the Female, um, that I, I know that y'all know about. And, and that is one of our biggest talking points is that we have a justice system that is continuing to fail abuse victims. I know I, my abuser was charged with a felony and the female prosecutor dropped it to a misdemeanor so that she could get a successful plea bargain deal out of it into a uh, into a diversion agreement. You didn't know that, John? <laughs> John looked shocked when he <laughs> when I said that. I, I, I've known John for years, so I was, I was like, maybe you didn't know. Yeah, so he was originally charged with a felony, and she dropped it, um, because let's be honest, prosecutors really, at the end of the day, don't worry. They don't care about justice. They care about their win and loss records. And if that means that putting a domestic violence victim in, um, in, in particularly in my case, back into a situation where she could be abused or stalked or whatever. Again, um, that was what they're willing to do consistently. Side note on that, interestingly enough, the uh, cops after his arraignment was over, and I'm standing in front of them, black, literally black and blue, fractured teeth. I couldn't eat for days. Um, they told me to hide for four or five days because the chances of uh, violence increasing as if it could get any worse than what I just gone through, um, were, were significant because of course, in an abuser's mind, it's my fault. He was in jail. Right. So therefore, uh, instead they told me to hide. So instead of telling me to learn how to protect myself and get a gun or anything really for that matter, they told me to hide. So this system is literally set up to fail abuse victims. And then that same system turns around and encourages victims to be martyrs for a, a gun control agenda that only hurts them. And, you know, I get it. Uh, there's a lot of argument about how, you know, women or abuse victims are five times more likely to die if there's a gun in the home. Um, what that study, I have that study. Um, I'll happy to send you the, the PDF on it. Um, the, the study never says it's actually by a firearm. Uh, but interestingly enough, the very next paragraph in that same study says that a abuse victim is more likely to survive her abuser if she's left the home and owns a firearm. Female gun ownership has gone up drastically over the last few years. And I, I know before this, we talked about some background check numbers. Do you have those numbers that you can kind of share on uh, the percentage of background checks by females over the last decade? You know, I don't, I, I've got to be honest with you. I don't have a specific number. I know that um, NSSF has put some numbers out there, although we can't get concrete numbers, especially, you know, a lot of the narrative is that they're new gun owners. Are they? Maybe not. You know, and that's almost impossible to tell. You know, all, all that, that the Nick's background system goes by is the name and, and the purchase. So it could be a new purchase. It could be a second purchase. We, we don't know. That being said, we do know that over the past three years, anywhere between 45 and 50% of new gun purchases have been made by females. And interestingly enough, and even better uh, for those la ladies living in the cities, of those approximately 50%, 
40% of those have been uh, black women living in cities where the crime rate is obviously significantly higher. And here's an interesting little statistic for you um, regarding this is from um, research that uh, John Lott has done over at uh, crimeresearch.org. It's the easiest way to say it. That's our website. (laughs) And that is that um, the media and politicians will tell you that 3.8 million Dangerous, prohibited individuals have been stopped from uh, obtaining firearms through background checks. But the reality is that 3.8 million, there's only been, excuse me, there's been 3.8 million initial denials by background check. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were prohibited or dangerous people. In reality, 99% of background checks have been false uh, denials or been in, you know, they shouldn't have been denied. And a lot of that is, uh, negatively and disproportionately impacting black and Hispanic communities, uh, because their names are phonetically similar. So there are, uh, a lot of people, uh, particularly minorities, uh, good law abiding citizens that want to be able to purchase a gun to defend themselves. And they can't because they may have a name phonetically similar to uh, the name of a, of a criminal that's already in their system. And then unfortunately, uh, well, right, it, they'll tell you the good news, well, you can appeal that process and, and get that overturned. Well, the, the appeals process is incredibly difficult, it's lengthy, and it's incredibly expensive. It's a minimum of $3,000 and goes up from there. So now you have people that are also financially disproportionately affected by the the failures of the background check system. And um, these are just numbers we know. I mean, gosh knows that, you know, these numbers, we don't have the current numbers, right? Because there's more people purchasing guns recently. And it always takes, uh, you know, the FBI and so on to catch up, right? It'll be a couple of years before we get some new data on this. This is just up to, I believe, the end of 21. Don't quote me on that. I'd have to double check it. But um, fairly recently, but not up to 2023. So what do you think you can attest the increase in female gun ownership to? Is it uh, because they're becoming more aware? Is it, it? Can you give some insight on that kind of thing that it, it's more of not just, is there more options? Is it more of the community's growing? Or is it just they, they find the need that they can, they need to protect themselves more often now? Well, it's interesting that, that you brought it up in that specific question, and I, I know that you probably did that on purpose, but um, <laughs> because it's, there's a cognitive dissonance in the industry that, you know, 99% of the industry forgets that they're probably only about 1% of gun owners in America, and that um, the, the majority, right, that that 1% is a very small number of the 99% of other gun owners or potential gun owners in America. So when we talk about the community making things more accessible, for sure. I mean, obviously that's the case. We're seeing that. That being said, most of the women that I teach, because I, I am a firearm instructor as well, they don't know about the community. They don't know about holsters. They don't know about these things. What they are seeing is, uh, crime rates going up in their communities. They are seeing the justice system continually allow uh, rapists and um, abusers and, and other criminals out on, you know, bail or, you know, just to let them go. I think LA County just did a, a bail free. Like you can, you don't have to pay bail now to get out on, on nonviolent crimes, but they don't define what nonviolent crimes are, which is, you know, crazy. So I think that women are waking up and seeing what's going on around them in their communities. And that is what's driving them more toward realizing that nobody is coming to save them and, and they need to, 
to save themselves. And I work in a very unique space where, particularly with abusers, women that have had negative experience with guns in the past, uh, you know, as children or, or what have you, um, some, some of my older ladies, um, we call them Granny Oakleys, by the way. Um, our older ladies come, yeah, they're pretty cute too. Um, oh, they they love running, they love running ARs. Let me tell you. But <laughs> sometimes, we, uh, at the end of the day, sometimes we have to help women understand that their lives are worth saving before we can teach them how to save it, particularly with abuse victims. So sometimes we have to build them up. So that whole mentality of they just need a gun. Well, I I agree. I don't think that there's any better form of self defense for a woman. Uh, than, than a firearm. That being said, sometimes the approach is different. And when we have women buying guns at the numbers that they're buying guns and even taking CCW classes and record numbers, but we're finding, interestingly enough, that they're still not all carrying mm-hmm. afterward. And that's a problem. So what is it that's going on? What's the disconnect in the industry that is creating this environment where these women are taking these CCW classes, they're getting qualified, even in constitutional care, they're still taking those fundamental classes because women want to know, right? We we want to know the details. We want to know how does this thing work? It's not, let's just go run a gun. It's what is this doing? How does this operate? And what is this thingy, right? And they want to know all of this stuff. Um, So they'll still go take those classes far more often than a man will after after buying a gun, which is great. Um, Men, I'm not poo-pooing you. I'm just telling you this is just... (laughs) The man woman thing, okay, um, <laughs> but um, the so we're finding that as we ask our students, me and some of the other instructors I work with, um, what what's going on? Why are you getting qualified? You're paying all this money to go to training, but you're still not carrying your firearm. What's what's going on? Well, they're still not feeling confident. So what that says to me as an instructor is that we don't necessarily need another gun design for women as much as it, as it is that we need to change our approach about instruction and marketing toward women of, of instruction and, and helping them build that confidence up in themselves and in, in carrying a firearm every day. Yeah, I think that that's, um, that's a very key insight is you have to be confident. Um, I know a lot of uh, women personally that um, use a concealed carry handbag and the first time that they show up to a range you know, they get ripped to shreds for, for using something like that. But they're like, hey, I, I wear a pencil skirt into work every day. And, and there's no real place for me to put it. So they're practicing with their handbag and they're doing the things to make themselves feel confident. But sometimes it's prohibited just because of the instructor at the time or the, the range officer at the time who doesn't, you know, understand that maybe for a woman, carrying has to, to look a little different at different points in their life. And so I think it's important that we become um, advocates for people to feel confident in how they carry and to practice how they carry, because that's what's going to get them to become uh, long-term, not only gun owners, which is obviously fantastic, but everyday carrying of that firearm. Yes, and advocates for the Second Amendment as well. Um, and, And women are very, they take things very personally, right? So the minute that you let a woman understand how this is going to this isn't the shall not be infringed mentality. You know, all gun laws are unconstitutional. This is this you being able to carry a firearm allows you to protect yourself and your babies. Mm-hmm. And that changes the game for women. Side note, ladies, if you carry underskirts and pencil skirts, there are amazing like uh, Spanx shorts now that have little concealed carry things in them. I inner thigh carry in skirts all the time. Just <laughs> 
So there's all kinds of options. And there's a lot of great ladies out there. I don't do it. I tried to do one the other day and got so awkward. It wasn't even funny trying to do a video about concealed carry. But there's women out there that are amazing at doing like they show their little outfits and they show pencil skirts and and even some that are out there actually training. They'll go out to the range, you know, in an open, uh, you know, in an outdoor range. And they're out there walking around and dressing heels and dropping their their keys and drawing from their thigh holsters and stuff. And at the end of the day, that's what really matters is, um, you know, is is like like Kaylee said, to make sure that we're getting them confident. You know, one important note I'd like to make on this. I know we're going to be wrapping up here, but um, understand that if, if a woman has a negative experience on a range with an instructor even online with some people making some foolish comments, um, you know, that can turn them away. You never know how many women are reading. I had a huge aha moment. We'll have to talk about it sometime um, with an abuse survivor who was in emergency shelter and came out. She'd been following me for months and I had no idea. And I thought, how many other women are seeing this? Like, we don't realize how many people see some of those, that, that foolishness occasionally that are in the comments. Right. Um, but uh, you give a woman a negative experience on a range. Now, all of a sudden, you became that crazy gun guy, right? Or girl or whatever, right? And congratulations, you just created a new mom's demand member, you know, but you give her a positive experience and she will become one of the fiercest advocates for gun rights that you can find because she understands how it affects her life and how she's able to protect her family. And it's a complete game changer in the way that, um, that advocacy, um, and I feel should be approached, uh, particularly for women. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, I think it's something that thankfully, uh, for those who have watched several episodes of the podcast at this point, you know, that I am a big advocate of when you walk into a, a gun store as a woman, that you be shown what you're looking for and not stereotype into one thing or another, uh, because not everyone is willing to have that conversation. And so I've been so thrilled as we've been talking to, to gun store and range owners that are getting that message and encouraging women to get on the range. I highly recommend that you get updates from GOA, from Crime Research, from all of these organizations that are, are giving the message to help equip your arguments, to help equip you as gun owners, and ultimately to make you feel more confident whether you're going to purchase your first gun or you're going just to, to receive that next level of training. It is so critical for our fight. Absolutely. When we talk about it at the end of the day, what we want to really say is we're arming the women and the men with education, confidence, and self-defense. As a former instructor, women were my favorite people to teach because uh, they listen and they, do, they, they don't come in with a preconceived notion. So instructors out there, make sure that you, you know, uh, train these women, uh, understand that you're not going to get a lot of the, the pushback and the, the arguments that you get. And 90% of the time, they outshoot everybody on the range. Well, call it 99% of the time, because they are way better than we are when it comes to listening and following instructions, because uh, we are stubborn and men. Uh, but let's go ahead and wrap this up. I know Carrie's got a comment that she wants to say about that. But uh, Carrie, again, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, Go join GLA. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Leave a comment for the algorithm. Go uh, follow Carrie. Uh, Carrie, can you plug socials for CPRC? So CPRC, you can find us at Crime Research and the number one. 
on X or the as uh, the new Twitter, um, Crime Research Prevention Center on Facebook and Crime Research underscore org on Instagram. Awesome. Again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We'll see you next time.